mounting student debt, access to educational facilities limited, and wait, now they've got rid of face-to-face teaching too? Oh, come on, what exactly are students paying for? I'm Elisa Anwar, and on this month's podcast, I'll be exploring the world of tuition fees. I'll be chatting to current students and recent graduates to hear their experiences of paying nine grand in a pandemic. We'll be looking at government responses and the process of getting a refund. And then we'll finally be analysing an alternative model to the current system. So what if students had no tuition fees? What if? What if? What if? What if? A monthly podcast series in partnership with IF, the Intergenerational Foundation. Domestic undergraduate students currently pay £9,250 for a single year of university education. So, if you have a standard three-year course, that's over twenty-seven grand simply for your degree. If you're like the majority of us, who don't just have nine grand lying around in your bank account, you take out a student loan to cover both your fees and living costs. Now, here's where it gets a little interesting. So let's break it down. The loan that you take out comes with interest. And that interest starts the moment you start your degree. Now, you have to pay back that loan plus the interest slowly accumulating, but not straight away. You only start paying back the loan once you start earning above the repayment threshold, which is currently around £26,000. Once you earn more than that a year, 9% of your income is slowly removed to pay back the loan. Any loan not repaid after 30 years is wiped off. So... Graduates face a marginal tax rate of 41%. 9% comes from repaying your student loan, 12% is for national insurance, and 20% is for income tax. That's 41% of tax. That's a lot. It's not always been that way, but right now, students pay the burden of their education. So is it worth it? Whilst the fees have increased, a lot of current university students feel that the quality of education has definitely changed. I talked to Rhiannon Wolford, who is currently studying at St Andrews, and James Main, who is a 2020 graduate of the University of Sunderland, to find out more. Right, so um, Rhiannon, we'll start with you, because you're still at university. How is your university dealing with the pandemic and teaching? Um, so we were told that we would definitely have in-person teaching and this was in like May, June time. And then it came to a week before we were supposed to come back and we were told that we wouldn't have in-person teaching straight away, um, which I was a little bit unhappy with the fact that the decision was made so late. Um, but now we have a blend of in-person and online teachings. And has it affected your contact hours having the pandemic? Um, Yeah, it definitely has. So my contact hours used to be about 12 hours a week and now it's two or three. That's quite interesting, actually, how it's reduced, because a lot of lecturers that I've been talking to have stimulated the belief that, you know, the the quality of teaching and everything is the same. The number of hours are the same. But from talking to a lot of students, that's not the case anymore. Yeah, and I just don't think it's the same lectures um, being held online. because sometimes it does feel like we're getting more content, but I don't always think that's necessarily a good thing because you can be a bit bombarded with content. And when you're in the lecture hall, lecturers kind of have an idea of like when you're rapidly typing and they know to kind of take a pause so that you can catch up, but that's obviously not the case online. Um, And sometimes lectures have gone over the scheduled one hour um, because they're pre-recorded. There's no like need for anyone to be out of a room, which sometimes can be a bit overwhelming because 
I've actually found that it takes me longer to get through online lectures because you can't just sit and listen to them. It's constantly pausing it or rewinding it if you haven't heard something. So it takes, I would say, maybe almost double the time that it does to go and actually just sit in the classroom. It's interesting that you said that because we've had the exact same experience that it's like a one and a half hour lecture and it's pre-recorded. But like you said, you have to keep stopping to actually take notes because there's no natural pause. And a one and a half hour lecture, we always say takes now three hours. And I don't think lecturers are aware of that. So James, you're a 2020 graduate like me. Um, so you're part of something that we call the Corona class. So did you have a graduation? How was, how was that all organised with you? Really, um, obviously, when the pandemic sort of started in March, we didn't have many lectures left, to be fair. So it was getting to the time where there was like, you know, a few exams, one or two assignments left to do. A lot of the assignments um, that we were supposed to be doing were practical assignments. So obviously, with me being a sports journalism student, it was a case of like going out and interviewing people and stuff like that and obviously that wasn't able to happen um one of the modules that we had to do uh was a work experience module um and you had to get two weeks of work experience and some people were in a position where they'd already done the work experience um but i was in a position where i'd done a week um and then i was going to do a week elsewhere um but the week elsewhere got cancelled so what actually happened was that they the uni changed the way that the assignments were done. So, for example, for the work experience one, if you hadn't completed the two weeks, you would have to do a case study instead. So you basically analyse the media organisation. To be fair, but I think the university um, made like good adaptations to, to it. Um, as far as lectures went, we didn't have many left, but they were recorded online. Um, and I had a similar experience to you guys. It was um, taking longer to do um, and stuff like that. Rhiannon, how have you found the move to online teaching at St Andrews? It's not really how I best learn, especially in a subject like international relations. I think a lot of your ideas need to bounce off each other. And if you're confused about something, then it's, it's good to hear someone else's perspective. And because we have such a broad range of like diverse students here, everyone brings different um, experiences and case studies and ideas to the table. So obviously the standard of education, we can't say it's dropped, but it's different, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Without a doubt. Do you think that the £9,000 plus a year fees is justified? It wasn't worth £9,250 before um, it went online. You know, the contact hours... Um, and nowhere near as much as you would have, say, when you're at secondary school, sixth form, primary school, even. Um, to be honest, I see the tuition fees um, as sort of, it's a bit like a poll tax on students for once they've graduated. I don't see, like, when it, without getting too political, when it, when in 2010, uh, the Conservative and Lib Dem coalition voted through the, uh, the tuition fees increase I didn't see the sense in it because a lot of students aren't going to be able to pay that back obviously it gets written off when when you turn 50 I think a lot of students will think well I'm not going to pay it back anyway but if they were to have a chance of people paying it back foot in full I think it's got to be at most three thousand pounds a year how it was before 2010 
um you know it's just it's definitely not worth nine thousand two hundred and fifty, and now it's online it's it's definitely not worth that especially of the perspective of i'm at university in scotland and all of my friendship group are scottish girls and obviously in scotland they are not paying for uni they're just paying for their sas which is like student finance so in that sense it feels even more unjust and i think that just really proves the point that there's not a lot of benefit in adding this fee to it i think all it serves to do is detract um, working class students from going to university because even though it technically is not a debt it's nine percent extra income tax it's framed as a debt in all discourse and especially when you consider that the poorest students are also eligible for most student finance which in my view is is great because it does enable us to come to university but you're leaving with such an astronomical amount of debt that I do think that it deters some people from coming to university and I I don't think that's right no, I think that's a really interesting point, actually, and it's not something that I thought about because the fact that Scottish students get it for free, yet we don't, but it's the same education. It, it doesn't make sense, does it? Yeah, it doesn't make sense at all. And I think it it just proves that a lot of people think that free or subsidised tuition is a really radical idea. Um, and I would say to those people, well, look, in, in your own UK, they're already doing it here. I think COVID has kind of brought the tuition fee argument back to the forefront of is what we're paying worth it because even though I know that universities have suffered a financial loss there we're not using the buildings currently nearly as much as we would we're limited to three library sessions a week they're not using the actual facilities for holding lectures so they are clearly saving some money in that regard whereas we're sat here in private accommodation having to pay for faster wi-fi having to pay for more electric I know people that have had to buy better laptops because their their old ones were not compatible or they weren't fast enough so it feels like we're bearing the cost of the transition to online um whereas universities are probably saving a little bit of money in that regard all three of us can speak on behalf of kind of a student population that we don't just have well the majority of us don't just have 9k sitting in the bank so we are forced to enter into this loan system aren't we yeah there's no choice and I think the fact that the student loans company has a complete monopoly on student loans it's not even like you can shop around for a good deal I think the interest rates on it are absolutely absurd Um, the fact that interest is paid as soon as the first payment goes out like I'm already accruing interest I haven't even graduated I haven't even got an opportunity to pay any of that back it means that when I do graduate anything that I do manage to pay off of it for a long time is probably just going to be an accumulation of interest so it's in the news um, that the government is going to be staggering returns after Christmas. So most students are going to be encouraged to stay at home now and complete online learning. And they're going to be returning to university over a period of five weeks. And those that are on practical courses have priority in returning. So, James, what do you feel about that, that now students are being effectively forced to stay at home and can't return back for another month? Uh, well, it's interesting you say that because... Um, I actually, for work now, I work um, as a carer for a student at the University of East London. Um, so um, he's not gone home um, yet for um, for the holidays. Um, but when when he's coming back, is I think he's saying that the plan to go back isn't till sort of the end of January. And to be honest, if it's staggered. Um, students are still having to pay rent you know for 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 somewhere that they're not living in you know what's the point in that um and you know even over 
um, over lockdown, the first lockdown, when I was still studying at, at Sunderland Uni, but obviously I was back in Lancaster at the time. Um, you know, I was still paying rent for some accommodation that, um, you know, that I wasn't staying in. Obviously, um, well, it's not obvious, but um, it wasn't, a because Sunderland's very cheap, it wasn't a great amount of rent. So I wasn't too fussed because I'd already budgeted for it. But, you know, there's many other students that aren't lucky enough to be in the same position as me that would benefit a lot more from not paying the rent. So for me, it wasn't much of an issue, but, you know, it obviously it's, if if it's, a, a, an idea of a government's, you know, to stagger returns in order to prioritise the health and safety of students, then, you know, it's got to be uh, the right thing, but there's got to be financial provisions uh, for students because it's, it's certainly not fair if they're paying um, for accommodation that they're not going to be staying in. No, I had the same thing. I lost... I think it was nearly £1,200 for three months worth of rent in Durham for a house I just wasn't in. And I know you said it wasn't a lot of money for you, however much you did have to pay, but that money that you did have to pay could have still been used for something else, regardless of how big or small it was. So it, it was very unfair. Yeah, absolutely. And Rhiannon, what do you think about this staggered returns after Christmas? I think, of course, from a public health perspective, it does make sense. But the late nature of the decision, like the late nature of the decision in September, that angers me so much. You know, in September, they had six months to think about how they were going to get us back. Like, I know that the, the Department of Education obviously had a lot on their plate, but it was as if they completely forgot that they were responsible for universities as well. I just think it's crazy. And I just think we've been so overlooked. The money could be used for something else. I think if you took any other section of society and said, here, pay rent for a house you're not going to live in for three months, they would find that absolutely absurd. I don't understand why it's acceptable to allow students to do that. I think there really needs to be some more provision and financial support for students um, because it, even if that was in the form of a tuition fee reduction, even though we wouldn't see that benefit immediately, it would make us feel at least like we were being cared about or thought about because at the minute it really just feels like they can do anything to us and, and we'll take it because we have no real means of, of pushing back against it. Right at the beginning of that, you said that we were a late decision for the government. And I think that is the standard feeling amongst most students is that we're sort of forgotten about. Right at the end, they'll be like, right, well, we need to figure out something to do with the students. Let's just send them to university. The universities can figure it out. Um, me and my housemate went away to Edinburgh for a night for her birthday. And on the way back, like I'm driving back and she gets this email titled voluntary lockdown. And the university put us into a voluntary lockdown. Um, for two consecutive weekends so this was the weekend before the first minister announced it which felt really scary nobody was quite sure of the rules what they were expecting of us um, if the university were going to fine us or charge us with non-academic misconduct if we broke this lockdown and I felt really unsupported in that maybe I know that they were blaring there's videos of them blaring sirens out across halls to mark the voluntary lockdown and people being refused to do laundry and and that kind of thing um, from the perspective of being in private accommodation, I think sitting in your bedroom window and watching everybody else who lives around you who's not a student being allowed to go out and live their life. Um, and you almost felt like completely caged up as this kind of like subsection of society that, to be honest, I know the locals were skeptical of us coming back. It felt like a very isolated place for a while. Um, I think it's interesting when you were saying that students were effectively 
forced return. And you can't blame locals for being sceptical and being worried because from the perspective of locals, if they know that suddenly thousands and thousands of young people are going to be coming, going to be partying, going to be stupid, you can see why they're so worried. And I don't think the universities manage that very well at all because effectively students shouldn't have really been mass migrating across the country during a pandemic, yet we had no choice but to. And it wasn't until we reached university that suddenly they switched to online learning. So it's almost as though there's been a delayed response in every single action, but we're getting the brunt of the blame, but we didn't have any choice, we had to go back. Yeah, that's definitely how it feels, um, especially the wording of one of the emails over the summer was literally, um, you are expected to return to St Andrews, we will expect that you will be in St Andrews for this day, unless you have a health condition and you can give us a regular update from your GP, unless your international borders are closed, or unless you are financially struggling and have been rejected from the hardship fund. I can, I can completely understand why people were worried, especially because we do have a relatively elderly population here, um, so they are particularly vulnerable. But I think that um, the university should have done more to um, kind of appease the situation or um, locals and students could have tried to like unite more to come and put pressure on the university. I think obviously the situation is very unique. It's something we've never had to experience before. Universities have never really had to go through this. Um, what should be done to rectify this entire mess? Well, that's a very difficult question. Obviously, it needs government action because the universities can only really do what the government advises them to do or they can take further precautionary steps, I suppose. But, you know, like Rhiannon said, there's been lots of um, lots of problems with students. You know, you, you look at um, students in Manchester that, were fenced around on campus they couldn't go anywhere you know there's there's a lot that needs to be done obviously um i would say that the government needs to stop its mixed messaging it needs to put measures in place you know be it financial measures and uh, so say if if we have um a third wave of of the pandemic because obviously the the vaccine isn't going to be rolled out that soon um so you know we've got to be prepared for more uh, for more actions happening you know but really if there's a third lockdown i don't think students want to stay on campus they they want to go back home you know just before the first lockdown i was i was straight back to lancaster and so was my flatmate he went back to uh, to essex so um there needs to be precautions put in place there needs to be financial support um, for students so um, you know if they have to spend uh, an amount of time where they're not in their university accommodation um, then they need to look at um, giving them refunds on rent like some people have but not everyone um, you know there's there's lots that can be done um, but students shouldn't have to bear the brunt of this they shouldn't have to uh, feel locked down um, in in their accommodation again. Um, they shouldn't financially suffer as a result. You know, so there's there's certainly a lot that can be done, but obviously the government aren't just going to do it on their own. It needs calls from student bodies. You know, like the National Union of Students, 
um, opposition parties, um, you know, need to lobby the government really to, to get these changes and have these things put in place. But I've not got much confidence that anything will change. Um, I think lots of things that can be done. I think the first thing that should be done is I think we deserve an apology from the government, from both the um, British government and the Scottish government for the way that we've been treated and neglected and just kind of like left to muddle it out on our own. Um, I think that the governments of all, all the governments of the devolved bodies need to collectively take action and stop kind of like just blindly supporting everything that universities do um, and actually listen to our concerns because we have tried to voice our concerns. Um, there have been like countless media reports of it. It absolutely blew up in the media at the start of the semester. Um, you know, I know students who have spoken to their MPs. I know that the NUS Scotland president, Matt, he's like always doing things, always trying to lobby for the rights of students. Um, and I think that it would be great to feel listened to by the government and not just the media. I think that um, financial support absolutely needs to be in place for if we're not to be here. Um, and I think mental health support needs to be in place as well. I think the government needs to step in with extra funding either for universities to appropriate or appropriate more counselling facilities in university towns. Um, obviously, we are all doing our bit to try and prevent the spread of COVID. But I think it's equally important that we try and preserve, you know, the lives and the well-being of our young people because at the end of the day, like these students are the future and it's such a tragedy to lose them because the support wasn't in place that needed to be in place. So I think that um, lots can be done, but whether it will be done or not, honestly, I, I highly doubt it. Evidently, students across the nation feel frustrated, angry and let down that their voices are not being heard. But as James said, the government aren't just going to do this on their own we need calls from the National Union of Students, also known as the NUS. The front page of the NUS website supports the hashtag Students Deserve Better. <laughs> we really do. So where is the NUS? We reached out to them multiple times for a statement. However, they are yet to respond. So what can we do? Students in the academic year 2020 to 2021 have carried on the momentum with more and more signing petitions, campaigning and protesting for a refund on their fees. It was debated in Parliament mid-November. Here's a small segment from the conclusion of the debate. The full debate, which I would encourage you all to watch, is available online. But I wholeheartedly dispute the suggestion that all students are being let down. Yes, tuition does look different because we are in the midst of a global pandemic. But different doesn't have to mean inferior. Universities have invested heavily in innovative and dynamic learning, utilising technology. And I've seen so many of these examples of interactive lessons, which staff have worked tirelessly hour after hour to produce. In fact, in a recent survey by Unite, it showed that 81% were happy um, that they didn't defer. And four in five students agree that although it is not what they expected, their first university year to be like, they valued their time there. Now, I am not for one moment suggesting that there has not been some institutions or some faculties within them that may not have given students the learning that they deserve. And that's why we have heard some accounts today. And for those students, there is the process in place. That's exactly why that process was set up in the first place. But the majority of students have been supported by hardworking staff hardworking staff that have invested hour after hour to support students in their learning. 
There's been an enormous effort made throughout the higher education sector to maintain the high quality expected by this government. In fact, online learning, when done well, takes many more hours to produce and costs more as the fixed costs, including labour, remain the same, combined with additional technology ones. Yes, universities are autonomous institutions, but as a government, we have a responsibility to the millions of students studying across the country to ensure that their education can continue and that it continues in a way that meets the high quality bar that we usually expect and that they expect. The findings of the Petitions Committee inquiry were clear, that while students who are entitled to a refund should be able to access information about how to claim, but, there is a, but a wide-scale refund should not be the way forward, and we agree. A wide-scale refund should not be the way forward, and we agree. Those were the words of a Minister for the Department of Education. I talked to Liz Emerson, one of the co-founders of the Intergenerational Foundation, to find out a little more. So, Liz, my understanding is that university students are essentially consumers. So we've entered into a contract with our universities. Now, this contract should be covered by the Consumer Rights Act of 2015. So if I'm paying for something that's not being delivered, then why aren't I getting a refund? That's a really interesting question, Elisa, and I bet if you went to any of the organisations that are supposed to be involved in regulating that, you wouldn't get an answer. Um, It's tricky. So according to the Competitions and Markets Authority um, in 2015, consumer law will generally apply to the relationship between universities and undergraduate students in terms of the in terms of the terms and conditions that are attached to that student loan agreement and as far as i can um understand it that consumer law is related to what the institution offers you as students so in terms of the course offered extra costs they have to be transparent and open to you about um, say if you've got to go on field trips that will be an extra cost the entry requirements how the course will be assessed but of course the consumer protection from unfair trading regulations of 2008 is supposed to allow students to be able to complain to an institution and demand refunds or discounts if they think they have been unfairly treated. Now, that's all well and good if you're an individual student, but this is a mass student problem. We're living through a pandemic where students have been really unfairly treated, both in terms of the amount they're being charged for basically virtual only courses, and also how they've been treated in terms of their consumer consumerism and in terms of living, if you're living in halls accommodation. So the problem with all of this is that it's individual students having to go to their own institution to demand um, some kind of, uh, of refund or discount. Um, they can then get it rejected. They then have to go to appeals. And that is a long and convoluted process, which is why um, the Office of the Independent Adjudicator, which is the Adjudicator of Higher Education, has just launched a consultation 
And it's a really important consultation because for the first time, students might be able to do large group applications for refunds. And that would mean students can, for the first time in a long time, mass together and get legal representation. And that's the point. Why are students having to demand refunds on a case-by-case basis, like the government is suggesting, when it's a collective issue? Tuition fees have gotten us into this mess. And I have to ask, isn't there a better system? I spoke to Dr Kevin Albertson, who is a professor of economics at Manchester Metropolitan University Business School, who thinks there is. So what would you propose as an alternative system for funding higher education then? Now, economics would argue the most efficient solution to the cost of pretty much of anything is that cost should be broken down in the ratio where people get the benefits. Now, according to the government's own, or at least the data which I had when we wrote the report, it may have been updated since then, but when we wrote the report, according to the data which the government had, the majority of the benefit of a person getting a degree went to the state. And because those benefits, the majority of, I think it was 52%, because the majority of the benefits go to the state, it stands to reason that the state ought to pay the 52% of the total cost. It turns out that 52% of the total cost of a degree is about £9,000 a year. So economic efficiency would argue that the state should pay about 9000 a year because that is the same ratio of total costs as the total benefits which accrue. 52% is what you think the government should be paying, and that equates to nine grand roughly. When the numbers came out at 9000 I could hardly believe it. I thought, you know, that's, that's roughly speaking what student fees are. Nobody is going to believe that it is so conveniently 9,000. They'll all think it's some kind of a fudge. And so I checked the numbers three times because it was, well, it was convenient, but it is also correct, if you see what I mean. So um, I'm, I'm quite confident if you go with the government's own data on the benefit of getting higher ed, then those figures are accurate. So... With the government paying 52%, you're then proposing that students pay the 48%. Costs which are borne, which aren't all financial costs, other than the fees, are borne by the students. So books, housing, food, as I say, the cost of not working full-time when perhaps you could be working full-time, things Mm -hmm. like that. So those would be borne by the students. The taxpayer would put up the other 9000 And eventually the taxpayer will get that money back because the taxpayer is investing in those students, investing in higher education. And that means that they will get the money back because, as we said several times, graduates pay a higher rate of tax because on average they earn more money. So then going back to that 48%, how would you explain that to students then? Because you said it comes under housing, it comes under food, it comes under all those things, but you're going to have some students who live at home, so they're not going to have any housing costs. You're going to have some areas of the country, like London, which have double the housing costs of places like Durham, where I went. How can we have a blanket university, universal policy? Well, one of the difficulties which you sort of are alluding to really is that it isn't actually possible to get a perfect policy. And I'm not saying that there is a perfect policy. I'm only saying that this will be an improvement over the current system. Nobody, of course, is forced, as far as I know, to go to London 
to do their high res. You say you went to Durham and Durham's lovely. I'm sure you really enjoyed it there. And so that's something the student themselves would have to weigh up. So how would I explain it to a young person going? So if, if this system is adopted, which was broadly speaking in place up until, if I recall correctly, the 1990s, where the taxpayer pays the fees and the student themselves pays for everything else. Well, I'd, I'd just say it like that. You know, you can go to university and you pay the cost of going to university, but the government picks up the fees. I mean, it's, it's actually pretty straightforward. A simple system is often much better than a complicated system, which might in theory give you a better result, but normally simple systems are better. So universal credit, um, I don't know, um, the National Health Service, if you see what I mean, blanket coverage, universal systems are generally more efficient because it takes such a long time to work out the special cases. Now, there's always going to be some people that could have done slightly better or slightly worse under particular special cases. But for the generation as a whole, it's better to have one straightforward system that people can, broadly speaking, understand. You're essentially saying the government and the taxpayer pays for higher education and the student themselves takes on their living costs to go to whichever university that they choose to go to. Yes, I probably wouldn't say pays for because people really don't like the word pay nowadays. I'd say that um, the country invests in its younger generation in the knowledge that the data indicate that that investment will more than be paid back without having to worry about an additional cost of student loans. That would be the way that I put it. I don't see why people shouldn't invest in the younger generation. I think they should. And of course, as I'm sure you know, in primary school, secondary school, you know, the government has, or rather the taxpayer has already invested in the younger generation. And when it comes down to it, if you consider, compared with fees in private schools, for example, higher education is, is considerably cheaper than private school fees. I'm not saying that the government should necessarily pay private school fees, but I'm just saying that publicly provided education is generally pretty efficient and cost effective and a good investment in our young people. I think that's a very good point because it's weird that we don't pay for your school or your secondary school or your college or sixth form. Yet, as soon as you go into higher education, suddenly you're lumped with this £9,000 a year. So, yeah, that definitely makes sense. I was talking to someone yesterday who effectively was saying that she doesn't have children, yet she still, as a taxpayer, has to finance all of these schools because she can see the benefit that having an educated younger generation has on the country as a whole. So I think that feeds into your argument, doesn't it? That it benefits the country and the nation as a whole, so the taxpayer should invest in younger people. I think that that is true. Now, sometimes people who don't have children take the opposite point of view, and they say, well, why should they invest in another person's children? In a sense, we have the quality of life that we have because we live in a society. There's a... Uh, an economic principle, on the old 20 pound notes, you probably don't remember, but it used to be on the back of it, Adam Smith. And he discovered the principle, he didn't, well, he perhaps didn't discover it, but he certainly outlined the principle that specialization leads to improvements in quality of life. So I don't have to train to be a dentist because somebody else has. 
I don't need to train to be a doctor because somebody else has. And it's not only things you go to university. I don't have to train to be a roofer or a mechanic. Do you see what I mean? Now, because I can devote my life to, I don't know, writing articles and books and teaching and stuff like that, I like to think I'm, you know, not too bad at it. That means that I don't have to devote my life to learning how to fix my roof, if you see what I mean. And some people, you know, do do that. But even if somebody chooses to do that, they probably still aren't a mechanic or, or whatever. Because we specialize, we can create this incredible system which gives us, well, laptops, you know, um, video conferencing. It gives us our quality of life. Now, the cost of specialization means that some people will be trained up in particular areas and that will benefit everybody. And so even if a person doesn't have um, children, they probably are very glad that there are doctors and nurses and other people who have been trained in those areas because that is, if you like, um, if you don't mind a sort of an economic phrase, it's what's known as a positive externality. And now what that means is that when in the marketplace a transaction takes place, so I buy, heck, I don't know, um, a watch. So I pay for it, I get the watch. And you don't really benefit from the fact that I have a watch, maybe a little bit because maybe I'm on time, I don't know. But in general, I get all the benefits, I pay all the costs. Now, when there is an externality, that means that other people either get benefits or costs. So pollution is an obvious example of an externality. If a person drives um, a car or maybe a particularly dirty car, then the cost of their pollution is, is being put on the community as a whole. In many economic transactions, they have these externalities. There are also transactions which have positive externalities, and education is one of them. The more people are educated in a society, the better the society as a whole is, although we don't know how any more than we can identify who exactly created the pollution. You know, in a sense, we all do when we drive. Do you see what I mean? And we all create a civilization. We do it together. Now, with the privatization, if I can put it like that, of the cost of education onto people, it undermines that social, that communal sort of feeling. And so people get to the point where they think, well, I don't see why I shouldn't avoid tax if I can get away with it. I mean, what the, what's the taxpayer ever done for me, if you see what I mean? And that, that kind of thing is bad. So a civilization is, is built by us all kind of pulling together, if you see what I mean, all contributing in order to make sure that things work properly. And so that is a more of a kind of a philosophical point why I think that um, student loans aren't so good because it, it leads more to individuality rather than communitarianism. But even on the pure financial point, it still doesn't make sense. Do you feel as though change will happen? And if so, how do we get this change to happen? Because it's, it's great having this amazing idea that makes perfect sense. But how do we get the government to actually enforce that? Well, this is a very difficult one. I think change will only happen if we move to an economic model that emphasizes sustainability and stops trying to foist our problems onto, if you'll forgive me, future generations. And the way that costs are foisted onto future generations is through ecological degradation, for example. So I would say an answer to your question is, is a broadly based answer. 
I actually do think we need, need a new intergenerational contract, but I wouldn't necessarily say it's an intergenerational contract. I'd say it's just sustainability. We have to have governments around the world, local governments as well as national governments, which agree that we're going to leave things no worse off than we found them. That would be the baseline approach that I would take. It's going to have a million and one ramifications in the way we run things, but I think that that would be the approach which we need to take. Leave things no worse off. And are you positive for the future? Some days. <laughs> a little positivity is exactly what we need right now. Education is a right. It's not a commodity. It's evident that the government can and should do better. So write to your local MP, protest and continue to speak out against injustice. Fighting for equality amongst current and future generations is something that we should all strive towards and is central to the work of IF. If any of the topics of discussion in this month's podcast have caught your attention, then head over to www.if.org.uk, where IF have a specific hashtag cut the fee campaign. Or follow the Intergenerational Foundation on Twitter, Facebook and even Instagram. See you next month, where we'll be discussing the growing mental health crisis amongst young people. What if? What if? What if? What if? A monthly podcast series in partnership with IF, the Intergenerational Foundation.